you missing your fix of the archers? Well, we've got the very solution for you. The Wiggly Podcast is back just for lockdown. Hope you enjoy this trip into the countryside. Welcome to the Wiggly Podcast. Hope you enjoy the show. We've got lots on this week's show. A bit from Terry Walton. We go planting larkspur with Monty and we hear a question from Kate Petham and much more. It's lovely to be back again, Heather. We, <laughs> we, don't, cross, we don't cross paths so much these days. Away. I mean, we were regularly bumping into each other, but it's been a, a year or two since we've crossed paths. And, uh, it has. It's been, a year or, it's been a few years since I've actually visited you at headquarters. So I know, all this nonsense be, behind us, let's, let's uh, put that right and I'll come along and visit you again. That's right. As soon as lockdown's done, I think you should. And I, I think you should. You're the sort of person who you might not see very often, but it's exactly the same as the last time I saw you. It's just as if I've known you forever. <laughs> anyway, well, I know. You, you, I know you. I, mean, you were I was a young boy when you took. <laughs> you was a young boy when you took me on board. I know. <laughs> anyway, so in right. this period of lockdown, I've got my raised bed outside and I've got two that are spare because the others have got all sorts of things in them so I've got currants and I've got bits and bobs and I'm no gardener so I've got two raised beds that are spare and it's what is it the 11th of April so I'm very very late but I have got you're not late you are no no this is not late okay yeah I've got well rotted horse manure I've got oh, lots I'm salvating, of, I'm salvating. Yeah, I've got lots <laughs> of worm compost, as you can probably imagine. And right. I've got some bakashi. I've got Ooh. lots of things for my store. And I've even got worms, which I can add right. if you want. But I, right. I want to know, there's a few weeds in this bed. I want right. to know what to do. And I want to grow some veg. So I was right. wondering what I should do. Right, what do you should do? So you've got all the right combinations there. With the with the bokashi, I, I never had bokashi contents to any bed. I add that to my compost heap because it's a compost accelerator. But I yeah. do use the pale yellow liquid as a feed. So again, yeah. that's a great feed later on. Having access to good good farmyard manure is a super, super bonus. And yeah. then with the worm compost as well, you're well on your way to success. Now yeah. you've got two beds. and know yeah. what vegetables... The, do you want to grow? That's the important bit. People say, what should I grow? It's no good yeah. growing what you don't eat. So make your mind up what you're going to grow that you really enjoy. And what, what, what other vegetables do you like? I like just about everything. So I love French beans. I love runner beans. Um, right. But the whole household loves veg as a whole. So good. basically, so we love a full variety. Okay, so we can grow virtually anything that you can consume, it, yeah. which is great because... That gives you total flexibility. So what you need to do is start crop rotation. Yeah. You know, only two small beds, but certain crops like certain things. So you've got lashings of horse manure, which yeah. is perfect for the beans. And if you're going to be, you said you like French beans, you're going to like, you grow French beans, don't grow the dwarf ones, they give you minimum crop. Grow the climbing French beans, you know, like cobra, gives you a much more crop for the bit of ground you've got. So that's perfect for that. Lashings of farmyard manure. When it comes to your root crops, with the carrots, beetroot, parsnips, and when it comes to your brassicas, all your range of cabbages, they don't want horse manure near them because it makes the pH slightly acidic, so it drops, 
and uh, it does in brassicas create cub root. And if there's any manure near, uh, near root vegetables, it causes them to fork. So this is where all this worm compost viewers comes in. On your own composting, mix that all in, and it makes a lovely fertile, nutrient-rich ground to grow those type crops in. And then if you want to grow, if you've got nothing, I presume just two raised beds, you won't want to grow potatoes. No. No, okay. They'll so take up con- too much space, won't they? They would. They take up too much. That's one of the difficulties. But then if you're going to grow a couple of onions or anything else, they also would like plenty of farmyard manure. And again, when your beans are growing well, mulch them quite nicely with the worm compost because that will do them well. And then with the with the bakashi and things like that, I tend to add that to my composting, but I do use the liquid as a feed. Plus, you've got the wormies, which constantly produce in the worm worm tea. Then take this worm tea out of your watering can when your crops are growing well. Feed them regularly, and from those two raised beds, whatever you tend to grow will grow well. And the next year, obviously, you move the crops around, so wherever your beans are going, we'll get the manure. And next year, root crops and cabbages will get the remnants of manure from this year, but it won't be too rich for them. I see. So your root crops don't like it too rich. That's the they don't like it too rich, no, no. Because And again, what tends to happen in rich soil, they like the pH to be up. So what do you tend to do where you're growing root, uh, brassicas in particular, is they like plenty of lime. They like the pH up in the 7.5 to 8, whereas mm-hmm. newers bring it down 6.5 to 7. Okay, and then... Just going back a step to where I dig the manure in, it's beautiful crumbly stuff, by the way. It's really well rotted. So do I need to worry about the weeds that are in there? So do I pick out all those weeds? Do I have to cover it up? Or how, no, fine, well, how fine do I have to dig it? Um, I, I would just go down a half a fork step. Yeah. But I would shake the weeds out. Presumably they're mainly annuals, are they? Yeah, they look nothing much. Yeah, well, again, if... If the sun is shining around about midday, chop them off, leave them an hour or two, the sun will shrivel them, you can turn them back in again. Right. What okay. you don't want to turn in is any perennials like docks and dandelions and this creeping butter up and things of that nature because yeah. they make your life misery later on. So any yeah. of those will have to go up. But annual weeds, you knock them off an hour or two in the sun, they soon dry out and you add a bit more compost to your, to your raised bed. Got you. And so... When I look at once I've got these things planted up, I presume I'll have to buy plants now, won't I? Uh, not really. I mean, there's still okay. plenty of time for beans. There's still plenty okay. of time for cabbages. I mean, you're not you're not short of time yet. It's only early April. Like everything, we're all gardeners. We all tend to be keen to start <laughs> feeding off the ground, and we want to be early. We want to be harvesting May and June. But yeah. some of the major harvests come on shore late July through August, September, and even these days well into October because winter doesn't arrive now until the minimum of December, if you're lucky. So the autumn is now a great time to be cropping all these, and it's a great time to keep feeding. So what happens with any particular crop of vegetables, it will grow at the time it's in its DNA. So I mean, a carrot normally from sowing to harvesting, ending up to 10 weeks. A runner bean... From the time you sow to the time you harvest, about eight to ten weeks. So they're all in that sort of category. So yeah. providing you are you're not going to freeze so late, it's going to run into winter, they will grow. Because once the October days come in, it's getting cooler, it's getting less daylight hours, 
and they stopped growing. But all the rest of the time, yeah, the the the, 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 the guns, your oyster, carry on. You can plant them whenever you wish. Oh, it's my only, God. It's only April. Don't panic. <laughs> you are such an inspiration. Now, would you, if you were me, so, I mean, I haven't got a small garden, but as you know, I've got these two raised beds. Would right. you waste those growing salady things, or would you put those in the house, perhaps? How, you I know, like leaves and stuff like that. Yeah, I wouldn't waste those two raised beds on salad. Yeah. What, I mean, you, you, you're in this floristry business. You use yeah. these buckets to put flour in? Yeah, loads of buckets. Bloody well, they are the perfect thing for your continuity salads. Take those florist buckets, drill holes not in the base, about a half an inch up from the base, right round, yeah. below the drainage. If you don't drill them in the base, the water runs away. If you leave yeah. a small reservoir, you won't go to water so often. Fill them with a mixture of all your own made compost and you a you bit of farmyard. What I would do, start again, I would put about four inches of good, well-rotted farmyard manure in the bottom. Yeah. I would then top up with a mixture of worm compost on your own compost. And if you can go out and pack a few molehills, I would top off with that. Oh, that I got some molehills. Well, you are. You've even got another ingredient <laughs> under, your, under your feet there you can use. And that will make the perfect. And in each of those buckets, yeah. I would sow spring onions. Yeah. I would sow little jam lettuce. I would show I would sow cut and can can lettuce and I would sow radish and I may even try a few baby beets. Lovely. And you've got a dual mix of your salad there. Now what you've got to remember is when you sow, you will be usually harvesting the lettuce and the radish fairly quickly in about six to eight weeks. The spring onions will follow on about eight to ten weeks and the beet do the same. So when you've sowed now in about two and a half to three weeks' time, sow this all repetitively again. And then, nice so you've always got a continuous flow of buckets turning around with salad materials. When you've harvested the first lot for the buckets, remember what you grew in each, skim two or three inches off the top, re-put some more hill, a bit more compost back in, and then whatever you grew, the lettuce, grow the spring onions, and where you grew the spring onions, grow the beetroot, and where you grow the lettuce, grow the radish. So you you do a bucket crop rotation as well. Wow. Now, um, can I put these outside or do I have to do them on the kitchen window? Where do I do them? If, if you want to gain a bit of space, a bit of time, yeah. put them inside until they germinate it. Right. That gives you a, a week. Okay. They'll come up that much quicker in a warmer environment. But then they can quite happily stand out in a nice sunny sheltered spot and they'll thrive. And how, often, having, you, how having, often do I water them, roughly? Well, when you, when you think they need it. It's yeah. always a difficult thing with watering. I mean, yeah. You don't go up with a watering can in the rain. It's not much good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember that. <laughs> you always feel a bit of a plonker dressed up in a long sewester <laughs> with a watering can, watering your lettuce. <laughs> and it does rain a lot, so... <laughs> So, you know, you know why you it got, rains here, don't you, Terry? It's your that? Welsh hills. So temperature is just over the border, and it just comes yeah. over here and it lands here. Well, I mean, we we get what the Irish don't get, and what the Irish, what the Welsh don't use, the Indies get. <laughs> anyway, you supply all our water, so we can't moan really. Can we, we can't complain, no. no. 
Anyway, so yeah. I w- water yeah. when it needs it. Got it. Yeah, you can always tell. I mean, and again, don't take teas them when you water on days like we when it's been like recently. You plant your sun. Bear in mind the bucket's black, so it will get quite hot. Yeah. Give them a good drenching. Don't tease them. Right. Okay. You know, if you're going to water it, water it so you can maybe even see it coming out of the holes. Yeah. And then leave it and it'll last maybe two or three days then. But the okay. plant will have a good drink. Lovely. And by these holes being half an inch up to the bottom, you've got this half inch reservoir which will percolate up anyway. And the idea of the florist buckets, because they're quite deep, aren't they? I yeah. I always imagined you grew salad in a kind of a shallow tray. So is the no, idea that they can get goodness out of all that depth? Yes, and what happens is because you've got this good coating when you at the bottom, yeah. that will percolate up through the soil. So ah. um, it, it'll, and I, I find forest buckets are the perfect salad receptacles. Absolutely perfect. Fantastic. I'm yeah. going to go and get some and get on with it. Thank you so much, Terry. It's a joy to hear you from the Rhonda. And uh, I hope you are safe and well. And look after yourself and Anthea during this time. We will, Heather. It's been lovely to be back. And uh, we hope we can do this several more times. And it's great to get back into reality and forget what's going on around us. So you also stay safe, be happy, enjoy your gardening. Thanks, Terry. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye now. Bye now. Thank you to GCB97 for the five-star review. They put, it's like catching up with old friends again. Great to hear about all the comings and goings at Lake Mere after all this time. Good on the team for keeping us entertained in these crazy times. Thank you. Something a bit different now. Luke and I have recorded a business versus COVID-19 podcast for small businesses. So if you'd like to listen to that, you can find it on iTunes or your podcatcher. Search on business v COVID-19. And here's an interview I did with Farmer Phil talking about the effect of coronavirus and the opportunities for farming. So hope you enjoy it. So, Phil, can you tell me a bit about yourself and your farm? So, uh, we farm a mostly arable and beef farm in West Herefordshire. It extends to about eight or 900 acres. We grow all combinable crops, so wheat, barley, vining peas, um, and grass seed, which is grown for turf and sports turf production. And then we have the cattle running alongside, so single suckler means that the calves are bred and reared on their mothers and then they're fattened and go for beef consumption and so they fit quite nicely into the farm system side by side with the arable. And you've got a few diversifications in terms of production of birdseed. Obviously from from that point of view we supply Wiggly Wigglers with birdseed composting products some of which we produce on the farm and we also clean and certify our own grass seed and so forth so that where we can we try to add value to products that we produce on the farm. And so employee-wise? There's three of us full-time equivalents. Um, We have one or two part-timers who come in and help here and there, but essentially we're three full-time equivalents most of the time. And so obviously your key worker being a farmer, I suppose. Um, How has this lockdown and coronavirus actually affected your enterprise? Well, 
first of all, you'd, you'd have to say that living in, in a fairly remote part of the country in, in Herefordshire, on a, on a farm, we're in the pound seats when it comes to lockdowns with virus, it would appear. Our business carries on pretty much as it would before. So we're very fortunate living on a farm in West Herefordshire that we are a long way from most urban areas uh, the risks are low and the act of farming is naturally self-isolating so whether we're sitting on a tractor or wandering around in the cattle yard um, it's, it's not a great hardship to us. And what about your supply chains? Well we've had one or two issues that may or may not have been foreseen but uh, in terms of supply chains notably with mechanics and parts of course then we are coming into contact with people and different businesses have adopted different policies so some of our suppliers have shut down full stop end of story others are running a very restricted service and some are functioning perfectly normally but with social distancing applied but obviously there are some things that we do that where social distancing is quite difficult for example if you have to have a vet to come and deal with a cow then you're not actually saying well you can only be at either end of the cow if you've got to do something carve it or whatever so from that point of view that's thrown up one or two issues i've seen the vets with ppe yep and and we you know we we, we use cleansing washing disinfectant ppe um, and from that point of view we're quite used to that where vets are concerned we already have some sort of biohazard awareness mostly from you know, historical experiences of foot and mouth and diseases like that. So it's not completely new to us, but of course it's a different disease and it affects us, not the animals. So that normally our biohazard thinking is protecting the animals. It's a new thing to protect us. Now, one thing that I wanted to speak to you about was cash flow, because a lot of small businesses are suffering from uh, the last few weeks of no income. Now, for a farmer, you're completely used to this in the sense that your cash flow is extreme, isn't it? Well, farming by its nature is seasonal and our cash flow works on an annual basis so that you collect up your cash having had your harvest and then spend it and perhaps a bit more than spend it during the year in order to get to the next harvest. So but you'll have many months of virtually no yes. income. And, and to some extent that helps helps us because we are used to that feeling. One thing that coronavirus and lockdown has brought home is the number of businesses, and this is really experiences with suppliers, who are running much tighter than historically they ever would. So the idea of keeping something for a rainy day, they've not been able to do that. And if you take their business away, they are very, very quickly in a very deep hole, some of them. And, and that has been an interesting experience. The other aspect of it is that uh, I don't think we in the farming industry had the slightest idea of how significant the food service industry was to us and our prices. So that pretty much overnight the food service industry was shut down. And the result of that has been that dairy and meat prices have effectively crashed. They've crashed even when there's no food on the supermarket shelves and people are struggling it's to get... It's absolutely ridiculous. There are cold stores which have reached capacity and some in terms of frozen meat and dairy produce that's frozen and cold 
purely because the food service industry has not been taking what it would have done. To give you an idea, the milk prices is a really good example. There's a huge variety of milk prices for a variety of reasons, but it is absolutely crashed purely, we suspect, but I, I'm pretty sure that we're right, because there are no coffee shops. The sheer quantity of milk, fresh milk, that coffee shops and cafes use seems to be far bigger than any of us thought and the price is a it's a real supply and demand um, example of what can go wrong and so going forward I'm sure that that is something that we in in our industry have got to think about and I suspect that when these businesses start up again the coffee shops the cafes and all those food service sector industries that they will be thinking hmm I wonder whether we ought to do it the way we used to do it or whether we actually ought to think in terms of adding some value somehow, giving ourselves a little bit of wriggle room if somebody turns around and pulls the rug from under us. And I suppose as a farmer, you're used to having the rug pulled from under you because of the weather. So, well, you know, in your own mind, what advice would you give to small businesses that are going through their first real crisis? Because as a farmer, I know You've been through plenty of crisis. A farmer's mentality, and, and I have to say that I am a glass half full individual, I'm an optimist. So this year is a very good example. Before coronavirus hit, we had one of the hardest, wettest, most horriblest winters you would ever like to wrestle with. And our crops are, for the most part, pretty poor as a result of that. Coronavirus doesn't affect our crops. Now, a farmer's attitude, particularly an optimist, is I just want to get that year out of the way, get to the autumn, clear the decks and, and start again, have another go. And people sort of say to me, oh, well, you're a moaning farmer. And yeah, I can do moaning farmer, I, but True. it doesn't, it doesn't actually, he is my husband. It doesn't <laughs> actually change anything. So that the feeling that it, it's a little bit like, and, and this is a more extreme example, but if you have a cow that for some reason has a dead calf and you look at her and you feel sorry for her because she's obviously sad that she's got a dead calf but you think right that's it that's gone wrong that's a complete disaster for her clear the decks back to the bull next year she will have a live calf and it will all be all right and if you can block that bit out that's the way i think that's how i do it you know i just think this year i'm not going to make any money it's not going to be a very good year my crops have been too badly affected over the winter clear the decks get it planted up next year will be better interesting and of course um our listeners will be thinking well phil there's one thing you have got experience of and that's a government handout well we all do like a government handout of course but government handout there's two things i would say about government handouts the price of wheat is the price of wheat. So we don't get an extra price of wheat just because the government says so. We used to, but we don't now. So the effect of that is that any money we receive in government handout goes straight through our business to those suppliers who can price things according to how much we'll have to pay. And broadly speaking, those suppliers are landlords, i.e. rent, and possibly to some extent land value, chemical and fertilizer suppliers. Now they produce things which they, they price according to how much we're willing to pay and therefore that subsidy goes straight through our business to them. Whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing is up to you but the idea that I'm using the subsidy to pay for my Range Rover or whatever 
is, is not the case because effectively the price of wheat is the price of wheat. And I am duty bound if I want my farm to pay the rent and the level of rent is governed by what somebody else will bid against me fairly obviously. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that each year now that subsidy is being fairly significantly reduced. And the effect of Brexit, which is of course a subject that we've all long since forgotten, what with Storm Dennis and COVID-19, Brexit has disappeared, hasn't it? But the effect of Brexit is that within the foreseeable future, five to 10 years, we are looking at not having subsidy in any way like we have it now. It will be money for doing something, whether that be environmental or that sort of related thing but you won't get it just for being a farmer as you do now and so from that point of view we've got to work out how to bring our input prices in line with that new regime because the price of wheat will be the price of wheat. Looking forward and I know you're a glass half full chap so looking forward we've we've seen um, farm shops really benefit from um, looking after their local customers. I mean, in our own case, we've set up a volunteer group which has enabled uh, people that are self-isolating or vulnerable to get access to food from their farm shops and we've been the delivery service for it. And we've also seen many businesses come to be able to supply farm shops and there to be a real uh, benefit to their businesses. So hand sanitizer, gin, um, cakes. <laughs> They've all found outlets in the farm shops because the farm shops are connecting with their customers. What are your thoughts on the opportunities for business going forward, whether they're retail or whether they're actual on the ground suppliers or processors? Well, I think for some years now, um, many of you will have heard farmers talking about shortening the supply chains and knowing about where your foods come from and how it was produced. But until now, there has been a resistance within the consumers to pay very much money for that. Coronavirus has brought you the situation where I'll pay anything. I, I need my food, whatever. I, it just cost is no object. And coupled with that, I think that on the whole, I speak for myself really, but we found the ability of the supermarkets to deal with the current situation somewhat disappointing. It hasn't really worked very well. Well, in our area, we're 10 miles from any supermarket and there have been absolutely no slots until this last couple of weeks. And I was also thinking that uh, that's from a practical point of view, but it, from a, a, a virus point of view, it, it is fairly well acknowledged that the weak point of the whole system that we've experienced for the last four or five weeks is the necessity to go to a supermarket yeah. and get food, particularly if they won't deliver it. And so from that point of view, you've seen uh, corner shops, farm shops, smaller enterprises really flourishing, particularly if they got themselves organised early on and said, righto, we're going to set this job up so that we can obey social distancing, but we can supply food. And certainly in our area, we've seen a number of businesses, small businesses really flourish, whether they're shops or catering businesses. Some people have repurposed what they're doing, pubs. They, online? Online, so that you've, you've seen people show resilience and adaptability and a little bit of flair for, you know, how can I work with this situation in a safe and responsible manner? 
it's much easier for a small business to do that than a supermarket. Looking forward, do you see the fact that you're a British farmer um, as an advantage to supply? You know, what, what are your thoughts on well, I think moving forward? We've, we've had a, an opportunity here because the situation we find ourselves in has given our customers a big wake-up call and therefore we need to press that home and make sure that we maintain the gains that we've had over the last four or five weeks we encourage local sourcing and purchase make sure that people get value for money and therefore build on on this opportunity to enhance something that we've been saying for for a number of years now and you know inviting our customers onto the farm and listening to what they've got to say so if we do something that they don't like or they want us to do something that we don't do then to actually seriously consider getting on and doing it in a way that they want to and i believe that this is this coronavirus epidemic has proved that they will pay when they have to thanks phil and thank you to mavro the Sharpe and Marjorie the Cairn Terrier for interrupting our podcast with a little gut dog battle. Here on the farm, time for Ask Wiggly. I'm in the office and we've just got a question come in for the podcast from Kate Petham and I think it's really for me, so I'll answer it. It is, Terry talked about mixing in paper or dry material into his compost. What sort of proportions work best in a wormery? He also mentioned not overloading a wormery with scraps. How do we know when we've done that? And Kate says, loving the return of the podcast. Okay, so when you're popping in dry material into your uh, wormery, really, um, it's what you've got, but don't go mad. So... For example, I would put in old loo rolls, old cornflake packets shredded up, but I certainly wouldn't put a whole newspaper in. So if you think of around 25%, you won't go far wrong. He also mentioned not overloading a wormery with scraps. People get in a muddle with this, but it really is very simple. As long as the worms are working in the previous amount of waste that you've added, you can add more. The worms aren't machines, so they don't move methodically in layers in the way that you're expecting them to. They don't know there are holes in the tray, so they just move to fresh waste and they go back into the old compost that they've made and they go all over the kit. But generally, they migrate towards the fresh waste to eat. So if you see them there just below the moisture mat, it's fine to add more waste. And if you don't see them there, you need to wait for them to catch up because they're not. Um, it's, this isn't a waste disposal machine. This is a way of recycling lots of organic waste with worms to make the very, very best compost and liquid feed. If you want a waste disposal system and you want to go in this natural way, then Bokashi is the way to go because you can add much more waste to a Bokashi kit and have <laughs> be much less worried about live creatures. To be honest, most people that are seriously looking at dealing with their kitchen waste and garden waste have three composters. One, Bokashi, two, a worm composter, and three, a garden composter. And that's what most people do. That's what I do. Exciting. 
they're going drilling larkspur just getting up into the tractor in monty can you tell us a bit about the coulters mont and how you've decided how to drill the larkspur um, shut the door the drill we've got is a accord drill combination with a power harrow i think it's current spacing is like 12 and a half centimeters and it's meant to be 25 so i've blocked off each other coulter and hopefully i'm going to drill 700 grams in 80 meters perfectly now if i haven't this won't be on the podcast and you've got a carrier which is grass seed but of yeah. course you don't want the grass seed to grow yeah i stuck about 500 grams of grass seed in the oven um, to add to this larkspur because you're only drilling 250 grams of larkspur. 100,000 seeds? Yeah, 100,000 seeds, not much. <laughs> it's about 20 kilos per hectare I'm drilling now. Okay, and so we're just to the left of the cutting patch and I can see a piece of earth that looks like it's been harrowed and worked down. Yeah. And we're just about to start, so now is the time for concentration. Yeah. Okay, Mom. Let's go. The thing I love about running your own business is you get the chance to try things. So this idea came to us from Monty less than two weeks ago. We've now ordered 100,000 larkspur, because larkspur is the best flower for drying, that we can use it all the year round. And now, we're in a massive class tractor with a huge drill on the back going down one strip of a field that was being wasted and putting in, hopefully, 100,000 larkspurs into the soil. Just left of the cutting patch. Not quite straight, but... I don't think the flowers will mind that one. Get out quickly and see how many uh, seeds are left in the tank. Okay. Okay, so we're going to see the result, are we? It's all gone. <laughs> it's just how quickly it all went. It's all gone. It has all gone. Good news! Okay, so now we're at the soil looking for the Brilliant. Okay, so this should start to show in and then we should be harvesting it in <laughs> watch this space. Thanks Mum. Thanks for listening to the Wiggly Podcast. If you want to know anything more about us, just go to the website www.wigglywigglers.co.uk. And now you can leave a question for Farmer Phil or Terry or me if you really want to, even Monty. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.